Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your blind tie affair. The last one to know, the last one to show, I was the last one you thought you'd see there. And I saw the surprise and the fear in his eyes when I took his glass of champagne. I toasted you, said, honey, we may be thrilled, but you'll never hear me complain, cause I got friends in Did you think I ruined a hang? Were you supposed to hang with Ted? No, and no. And then I just, just kind of like crashed it and ruined it? No, he was, he totally like just sent me an email at one o'clock today. He's like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, I'm at work. I'll be home at three and Dan's coming over at four. He's like, cool, I'll be there at three. Yeah, and then <laughs> he comes in late that 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 dog is like it really is the bane because i did one with minchak two days ago uh-huh. alex, alex minchak and he has normally what i do is i go to the person's place i'm in jersey right now so there's sure, no way yeah. i can get people to do anything but i go to their place and he was like i just had a kid the baby's really loud can we go to another place and he lives around the corner from ted of course yeah. and we did it at ted's place and the dog was really hyper in the beginning and then like fell asleep. And then towards the end where he's basically Menchek is like wrapping up his worldview. You know? Right. It's right. like, yeah. like really just trying to like put it together and put it at the end. The dog just starts jumping on him. So, <laughs> so, so the sound is him all of a sudden, it sounds like he really doesn't know what he's talking about. Cause there's all these awkward pauses. <laughs> he's he's like, like, sometimes I just feel like, you know, people have these narratives for me and it's just, well, um, um, uh, uh, no, no, stay, stay, <laughs> stay. <laughs> and the thing is, it's my, it's my, it's not my dog. Right. So I can't like, I can't be like, let me lock this dog in a room. Right. For a while. There's right. nothing I can do about it. Right. And the same thing. I'm like grateful that fucking Ted's okay with letting me like do like a setup at his place and interview somebody. But right. it was like, oh, at least I don't have to do that with that dog anymore. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of something and Ted comes over with the dog. And we're like, tell me about, tell me about Jim Drummer. Tell me about this, you know, kind of interesting tangent that I could put in later. And there's like, really? <laughs> and the fucking dog gnawing in the background. I'm like, oh, this dog is back. The dog is back but two days later. You'll never escape. Yeah, no, I'm just going to be interviewing someone in Berlin. And like the dog would like jump in out of nowhere. Like Ted's like, hey, man. Hey, man. You I got sent, pastrami? I, you got pastrami I, I, I sent my dog to Berlin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Send her back with some bratwurst. Yeah. Oh, man. Not disaster, but I guess funny. Yeah. You know. Be like a secondary character in these things for a little <laughs> for a little while, you know, unless she keeps on coming back. So you're the first person out of, like, the Charleston people. Did, did you all get to know each other around, like, the same? Did you all come up together in uh, Charleston? Well, I mean, both Nick and Mike are younger than I am. Uh, Nathan I met after I graduated through Ron Wiltrout. Ron had moved to Charleston from Columbia and Nathan was in Columbia and had made a brief stint up up here actually and then moved back to Charleston. And then in 2005, Nathan and I started the New Music Collective and that really became like kind of a center point for like a lot of the people who were looking to do things that were outside of the commercial music spectrum. What was it like in Charleston? What was the scene like? Well, there wasn't a scene in Charleston. Um, we, we started the organization specifically inspired by a contemporary art center called Redux, who is just like a bunch of young folks like us, you know, like 23, 24. It's like, hey, 
let's start a nonprofit for contemporary art and then build a community around it. And we went just to because of, there was zilch. It was because, yeah, because there wasn't anything. Was it because you wanted to do it, or was it be, was it because you were trying to fill a void? Or both. Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah, both. Absolutely. You know, we wanted an outlet for our stuff, but we also felt really strongly about everybody having that outlet. You know, yeah, there wasn't much happening. I actually split about a year into the beginning of that um, after doing a whole bunch of stuff with, with those folks to go to grad school at Mills. And it had always been my plan to leave Charleston and go to graduate school. So that's why I left. And also, like, I mean, definitely the stuff that I did was, like, at that point, the furthest out of anybody. And there wasn't anybody else doing electronic music or or sound art or installation work based in sound down there at that point or anybody around in the general area that I knew of. So I needed to go someplace where, like, I could actually learn how to do the things that i was interested in you know so there's no one to there was no one to study with and no peers to learn from you no just so no yeah my undergrad was like you know i was writing uh like neo-romantic music and playing jazz which was great like i got a super solid like foundation and stuff and developed the kind of discipline i think that you need no matter what field you go into you know to like go and work on something for eight hours at a time every day what was your instrument i was a guitar player Okay. Another guitar player. Another, yeah. Yeah. You know, another one. Did you go in knowing how to read music or were, were you mm. one of those guitar players that was like, oh, uh, you know, I'm good enough to feel my way around. And then once you hit the conservatory, you're like, oh, fuck, there's a, you know, a discipline here that goes beyond. Uh, no, I mean, like memory. I knew, I knew how to read music. I was never good at it, like sight reading or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I could, I could read through a standard and like kind of embellish it as we went along. But yeah, I mean, if you put a sight reading study in front of me, I'd have to play it really slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I grew up learning to play by ear and and even not being very good at learning other people's stuff. It wasn't that I would learn how to play a Jimi Hendrix solo note for note. I would take the ideas that I liked and then kind of make a different solo you know, from it or something. This is like when I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old. So. When did the shift happen? Okay, I'm assuming you still play guitar on some level, but certainly that's not what right. I know about you. Um, when I got out of college, I was actually like, you know, doing my thing, making a living, playing guitar for whatever, lounge music and weddings and all that kind of shit that you so, do when you try to make a living playing guitar. Oh God, it's so awful. You had some, you had, so you must have had like some fucking awful south carolina oh, it was, weddings it was pretty bad was yeah. it hickey did it get hickey or that, it, oh god there was all kinds of stuff that happened i mean all kinds of like embarrassing and painfully awkward moments um somebody coming up to me and asking me uh if i could play the drum solo from inagata davida and i was just you know i wasn't playing the fucking drums i had a guitar in my lap very obviously yeah, so yeah. <laughs> But then also, like, you know, there would be, like, uh, there was one time we were playing some kind of wedding reception party at some rich dude's house out on Daniel Island or some, one of the fancy places. And, uh, you know, my friend Kevin Hamilton, who's black, is playing bass. And, like, there's dudes, like, just standing around us, like, talking to each other, dropping the N-word and, like, you know, just making all these horrible comments. Uh, about him? Not about him, but just, like, but in, just in general. In general, mm -hmm. yeah. And it was like, you know, holy shit. Uh, we stopped playing and I was I was like, dude, we can walk off this gig right now. Um, Did they not even realize? They were like, what's the problem? 
I'm right. just talking. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah. It's so ingrained. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it just it wasn't conscious that they right. conscious that they were fucking rubbing it in this guy's face and in any and you know in any civilized person's face. And and I mean, I think the added insult to that, especially, is down there. If you're playing music like that, you're very much of the servant class. You know, it's the type of thing where, like, you don't go in the front door. Like, you have to take your stuff around to the back to load in and all that kind of shit anyway. So I've always had a chip on my shoulder about that kind of thing. So it was that. I think a lot of it was just, like, I was playing all this music for, like, people with way too much money. And I was their wallpaper. You know, I had a moment a year into it where I was like, man, this fucking sucks. (laughs) This is not what I signed up for. And uh, so I stopped doing that for a while. And like at the same time, a friend of mine gave me a bunch of illegal software, music software. And I also didn't have any outlet for writing music at that point, uh, other than for like jazz combos. So I started actually putting together a whole bunch of, of basically tape music. So what came out of you getting into working with electronics just came out of that there was no ensemble to do your stuff. Yeah, there was nobody and, to do my and, stuff, and uh, my music situation at that point was just really like disheartening, you know? A lot of people, I think, who started out with electronic music or got into electronic music did it for that reason, was there was no other outlet, and the scene was so bad around them. that That's the best medium for you if you're alone. I have a, I have a friend from Israel who started out like that. Mm-hmm. And it's because there's no like really kind of avant-garde experimental thing going on in Israel. Maybe there is now, but when he was there in the 90s, right? Um, nothing like that was going on. And that's how we got started with doing stuff with electronics. Was, he didn't have to pray that some new music ensemble was going to pick it up somewhere else where he could hear the results of what he was doing. I mean, that's a big part of it, too, is like no matter what kind of music you're writing, you have to have the opportunity to develop your craft, which requires you to be able to hear what you're producing yeah it it requires you to be able to realize when you're failing yeah absolutely to to say like that part was pretty cool i liked this about it that was not so great this part was just a disaster you know like but that one aspect of it has some potential in the future i mean that's how we learn how to do stuff i think that was like a huge thing is just being able to work on stuff and then listen back to it and develop a voice in a legitimate way, you know? And since like at that point it wasn't really performance based, I wasn't producing it for performance because it was all just fixed pretty much. But a lot of my friends were in the art world, like the visual arts. So I ended up doing sound for a couple of people's installations. And then I started getting uh, offers and shows for my own sound installations. And so I kind of developed a voice there in terms of dealing with music and sound not so much in a temporal sense as in a spatial sense at the moment which was actually really freeing for me because form is one of the most and still is like one of the most difficult things for me to deal with so it would basically be just like a whole bunch of cds playing on a whole bunch of systems all of different links that would you know you could do the math and they might match up like a year later if they were playing constantly but um over time, like I kind of learned, no matter what you do, you kind of have to figure out what your process is and what your goals are. I'm not going to let that go. What what became your process and what became your goals? I always think about this. It's that if you go from something as shitty as playing in wedding bands and then, and then you end up rejecting that, then I think you're going to be more serious about your goals. Whereas if you just get into into the first place because you like being in the scene. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there was definitely, I remember a specific walk going from one gig to another where I kind of decided that, um, you know, just had this moment of, wow, like, it was a couple of things. The first of which was understanding um, the music that I create's relationship to my own sense of self-worth. I think having come up through, you know, a music program, just in general, we have a tendency to really tie how well we do something to our own sense of self. And I had a, a moment where I was like, well, that's bullshit. It's something I do. And I've, I've hung on to that for a long time. It's something important to me. So the goals were to, I mean, I wanted to create music that people listened to actively. Like if I was going to put the effort in to make something, I wanted it to be something that somebody came to see and actively listened yeah, don't to. Don't listen to this while you're eating a shrimp cocktail. Yeah, And exactly. saying the N-word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at that point, a lot of it was subverting that kind of typical way that we, as a culture, are addressing musics, you know? I knew from my experience playing that the reception of music is such a highly subjective experience. You know, talking about the shitty gigs, like you go play the shitty gig, and there actually might be two or three people there who are like intently listening to you. And they might be listening to the notes and the rhythms you're playing and like have a history of the understanding of jazz or whatever. And then there might be other people for whom it's just, it's a mood. It's an ambiance. And then there's even one step further where for other people, it's a status symbol that they're just people there playing while you're doing your thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then for other people, it's annoying. Yeah. It's, it's like, I'm here to socialize and talk. I don't need this extraneous noise, um, which is how I feel most of the time if I go into a situation where it's a social situation and there's music playing. And within those, there are all kinds of subdivisions of, of how people might experience something. So that was like really something I was, I was very interested in at that point. I was writing a lot of pieces that were um, kind of just blatantly stylistically postmodern. Like the way I was approaching music at that point was to take these things that had cultural references and squeeze them together and layer them on top of one another. And some of those pieces were like kind of cool and some of them completely failed because I didn't have the you know, just the technical skill to pull it off, really. I think those things were my goals, like dealing with modes of listening. At the same time, like I had totally become John Cage devotee, uh, you know, had read Silence, A Year from Monday, Empty Words, all this stuff. I was really interested in those ideas. Um, and then some kind of continental philosophy and critical theory kind of stuff as well in terms of how how a culture works, how a culture receives information, and processes that information. So you were doing that, then you ended up going to Mills. Mm -hmm. And it was cool. I What I was doing changed dramatically within the first few months. Were people showing you how to do stuff the right way? No, it wasn't necessarily that. Mills is not that type of school. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, means. yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's uh, real open, which is, is often great and is sometimes kind of like results in some silly things, but. Um, that has to be that way, though. I mean, if you're going to yeah. be open, you have to accept that there's going to be silly things. And if you see a bunch of silly things, it doesn't discredit a school being open. Yeah. And at the same time, I, I, I feel this way strongly to this day, even even about the pieces that I did in Charleston that like I look back on and like I just blush thinking about what I was doing. Yeah, those are so. But yeah. I mean, I was it's it's great because you learn from screwing things up. It's important to be able to look at those things you've done and say, oh, I was going for this, and I totally blew it, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. 
because then in the future you know how to not blow it or I at mean, least you what, know what's if you making you you know what what's making the person blush is not that it was part of a process that helps them get better is that they think what they were thinking at the time while they were making it, which is this is going to be part of my opus somehow, yeah. you know? <laughs> so you're like, this is my this master is going work. To be, yeah, yeah, it's my master, <laughs> it's my master work. In a certain way, you have to you have to trick yourself into thinking that while you're while you're doing something, or you're just not going to care about it because if you think of it as part of oh, I'm doing this to get from point A to point B, and it's not a means onto itself. You know, I just don't think you're going to devote as much time and effort as to as I, to doing it, even I, though in the end that's what it ends up being. I think I would disagree with you on that, Mark. I mean, currently for me and for the past several years, I don't have and it, I have nowhere near the attachment to the music that I make as I did then. Like, no more of an emotional. Like, I I'm just not emotionally connected to it in the same way. It's kind of like going to the thing where I was talking about, you know, ego and and the work you produce. For me, those two things are separate, and it for me, it also I feel like it makes my work stronger. I'm nowhere near as prolific as I used to be. I don't write as much music, though I, I perform a lot and I improvise a lot. But when I do write music, it's an idea that stands alone of itself, like apart from me. I feel like that separation allows me to like go in and tinker with the details until it gets exactly where I want it to be. But I only produced maybe two works like that a year. You know, the rest of my time is spent doing the, the no input feedback stuff. Maybe you think that way because it's not part of your main identity or it's not the primary part of your identity. Yeah. I mean, it's probably mentally a healthier way to be. It's either that or what I was talking about, which is delusional in a sense. Yeah. You know? Oh, this piece sucks. I suck. Yeah, you know, yeah, or like yeah. this piece is great. I'm the best thing ever. Which I mean, that's a great feeling when it happens. Uh, so who did you study with in Mills? Who I mean, they've had a bunch of famous people that's gone in and out, but uh, who who was there when you were there? Pauline Oliveros was there when you were there? Well, Pauline was doing teaching remotely, so she, she lives upstate New York. So, uh, I mean, she came out a couple of times while I was taking one of her classes, but mostly she was teaching via, like, uh, iChat or something like that. Oh, or, really? Or, or, like, it was actually pretty hilarious. So, you know, we're doing all these deep listening and meditative exercises, and it's Pauline's just her face like what you would expect from a webcam but broadcast like giant on this giant screen you know it's that a very is, wizard that, of odds ish you know that, that is hilarious she was naked the whole time probably <laughs> just with an, an accordion in her lap you know <laughs> oh Pauline <laughs> she, she probably took her clothes off to teach the class right. she knew she was like oh time for me to time teach my Mills college class let me get the accordion <laughs> take my pants off so so really so it was it was like that so it was i mean i've gotten i've actually gotten to know pauline a, a whole lot better since moving here because she comes down and plays it issue sure fairly she, regularly yeah i'm sure so it's with the buds now but yeah, i mean you got to i'm sure you got to know her digital face pretty well at mills but right. that's about it right yeah Oh, uh, that's hilarious. Does anybody else do that at that school? Or is it just that um, she has the status enough to yeah, be able I mean, to just no, to be like, a, literally just to be a face? She's Professor Emeritus there, so I mean... Oof, I mean, that is the definition of phoning it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, she literally... Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, it's like her, her, her and Cage's influence pervaded kind of everything at Mills. I mean, that was... To but, go to school there, those are your Bach and Brahms. You know, like those are the people who's who you study for the basics. But to not be there means that your influence is still part of this kind of mystic, uh, mystic aura that surrounds you. Or like just a tradition, you know, like 
you know, in the same way that when you go to an undergrad stuff, like you study inversions and Neapolitan chords and all that kind of stuff that came from the certain tradition, you know, when you go to Mills, you study indeterminate scores and alternate methods of communication to performers and alternate ways of composing and how composing and improvising and the technology can all meet up that, you know, those are our, our six, four inversions. Those are our Italian six chords or whatever. You had no classical training there. Do I mean, no, not while I was there. All of my, all of my, you were in graduate school. I was in grad school. Were there undergraduates where they had to get that basic classical training i'm not trying i'm not trying to qualify anything i'm just curious if if they're no there were off the there were but at the same time i know that it was not as rigorous as what you would expect if you went to like a um manhattan school of music or manhattan school or even college of charleston you know where i went you know just any any kind of school with a traditional music program people going in with the violin wanting to learn how to play so when they get out they can get a symphony gig or whatever play for racist weddings (laughs) on an island yeah exactly yeah yeah. Yeah, so when i was when i was there uh my main person that i was studying with was james Fay. though i had a very interesting semester with hilda paredes do you know her at all she's no but i know james's stuff because what ink performed a lot of his uh, that would make uh, sense he was a columbia guy he actually was like a huge influence on me and not certainly not in a like you should do things this way kind of way but just kind of understanding his approach it really well i told you i was doing all this kind of like collage you know mixture of style stuff when i started there and one of the things that i actually wanted to do when i went was to learn how to hone my music down how to take one idea and make a piece out of it you thought it was too uh clusterfucky or it was too clusterfucky it was all over the place and it was all over the place because i didn't have the techniques or even just the understanding of what a composition was let's try and make a distinction it wasn't only that you didn't know how to do it but you didn't know how to think about it yeah i mean i was just really into this like kind of pluralism you know and i had kind of hit a wall and decided it also wasn't really the thing i was that interested in anymore i had always been interested in psychoacoustics and acoustics but i i did become much more interested in like the physical matter of sound and sound how we perceive it and just straight up working with sound and not really I decided that I wanted to put all the social content on the back burner for a while and not even think about how people are relating to it, how it fits into this cultural spectrum of other musics. And for me, that was that was much needed. And also, like I was saying before, it was still a thing of figuring out my process uh, for how I want to create music, you know, and figuring out like what it means for me to sit down and make a piece of music having... I mean, just being who I am. I I eventually accepted the fact that, like, I can't sit down with some manuscript paper and, like, have an idea, you know, a motive or something, and then develop that. Like, my attention is like a fruit fly or something. So the great thing at Mills was, was, like, just totally being cool with giving up on that side of things because it was always just frustrating and, like, I don't want to spend all my time doing something that, is frustrating like that why go upstream especially if there are other other avenues that are just as legitimate at this point and i think my background like playing jazz for so long and even when from the very first time that i started playing guitar you know i I was much more apt to just make shit up on the spot you know and maybe make it up within a structure within a set of rules 
but still like being able to react in real time. And that's like, that's actually how my brain works. Like I'm a really fast thinker. I don't exactly always look into the future and plan as well as I could, but I can think on my feet really well. I think just for me, it made a lot more sense to be start building these compositions around processes that I then engage with um, and am able to kind of have both both sides of that going. So you create a work and then you figure out how you're going to engage with it as a performer. So basically what you're saying is when you execute a piece, when you're performing a piece, there's a set process that's going to happen in that piece no matter what. A set process or an in, or some sort of <laughs> or some sort of other process that I don't have control over. Like if I if I'm making a composition like like I get commissioned to make a work, right? Uh then I will come up with a process and come up with layers of processes that kind of sit on top of one another. But I always strive to have like the, the simplest possible thing going on that will yield the most complex results. If I'm doing the mixer feedback stuff, there is a process in place and I have access to all these points in the process, but my level of control over it is debatable. Am I being wrong by comparing that to jazz? I'm not. I'm no, not, it's very I mean? much like that. I'm not even comparing it to um, you have to play all over this chord structure. But a lot of the times, you know the order of events that's going to happen, and the and the process, and how that's going to play out before you start the song, and then you're just interacting and improvising and making commentary on that. Kind of, I would say. Again, the bulk of my output is this mixer feedback stuff, and the parameters are just different from jazz, right? Like in jazz, you have a form that you're following. I'm not, I'm, yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm, but, I'm not, but you're I'm right. I'm not saying the parameters are the same. I'm not saying right. You're no, you're plucking out a chord progression. But, but you're absolutely right, and yeah. this is. It's entirely how I approach it and how I feel most comfortable approaching this type of stuff. There are certain behaviors that are going to happen that you know about. There are certain behaviors that are going to happen that you're unsure about. There are certain behaviors you can influence, but at the end of the day, it really is this real-time dialogue between you and the processes you've set up. And those the processes in the mixer feedback stuff are really physics-based and less decisions that i'm making less musical decisions that i'm making is there any way while you're doing one of one of these things to just completely throw a wrench into the gears and like have it have it collapse or or yeah you just yeah no it happens all the time and i said it and part of my i mean i think about all the mixer feedback stuff as one piece one series of pieces i'm working in this series basically and i build all the external circuitry like that's where the the pre-composition comes in when I build a circuit, I'm doing it because I know that it will throw a wrench into the behavior this way, or I know that it will give me some semblance of control over the behavior in this way. I mean, I'm going to let go of this jazz analogy soon, sure. but when people sit down and they hear a piece of jazz, even if they don't know the specific rules of the game, because they've heard it a lot before, they have the reference where they know basically how it's going to go. Sure. Is that important for them in your piece? Are they like... Is it is it important for them to know the behavior of yeah mixer uh, feedback? No, no, not at all. In fact, I. But do you think they can pick up on it? I would like for every piece to be its own experience, you know, for people. I mean, one of the reasons that I started doing it was to totally subvert my musical intuition, in the sense that when we try to do things that are intuitive, we're trying to do things that we're familiar with, and I wanted to subvert that whole familiarity for myself, anyway. And I think it comes across to a lot of listeners that way a lot of the time. 
though there's it's not music without a tradition i mean i i see myself coming like strictly straight from a like a david tudor kind of electronic tradition um, you can listen to something like tone burst and then listen to stuff that i was doing three or four years ago and it could be almost the same <laughs> same thing you know it's like i was definitely in the beginning i was just copying that kind of thing but a lot I think, of people have that similar process yeah of course know. You know, you assimilate and then you imitate yeah. and then you can do your own thing. But I mean, as far as jazz goes, the thing with jazz is it has a much more widely received tradition that goes with it. Like even somebody who doesn't know what jazz is or like doesn't listen to jazz on a regular basis, you can play something for them and they'll be like, oh yeah, that's jazz. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, with this kind of music, if you play it for them, they're not going to be like, oh, that's American experimentalism yeah. in the style of David Tudor. Yeah. I think if I'm trying to make an argument here, it's that it's not only the cultural reference that makes jazz make sense to people. It is also hooked up to people's cognition where it works for them. It's, you... not like, it's not like if you sat down at a jazz concert and for some reason, some person grew up in a bubble and then they came down uh, to a concert and they were listening to it. They wouldn't be like, these sounds make no sense to me. I really believe there's something hooked up to cognition that makes them believe that that convinces them of the process that's happening. And my question is, for your mixer feedback stuff, is that the same? Can they hear that process? I want to first debate your point there. It seems like you're saying that there is a universal kind of truth and music a universal thing that we can hook into is that what you're you going know i'm for? not i'm kind of weary of putting it in that mystical way uh, i think that there is a certain nature to human cognition that makes jazz work i disagree okay, what I, makes I, jazz work then just the cultural reference it's a cultural reference and i mean so here's my thoughts on how our brains work our brains are, are organs that that process patterns that it, it receives from our senses, right? Yes. We recognize a pattern, something that has a certain level of repetition. This actually goes back to like, have you have you ever read the Schoenberg book, The Fundamentals of Composition? Oh, ages ago. It was awesome. Like it was like my Bible for a year when I was 23 years old, right? Composition, uh, variation and repetition. Those two things, right? Um, that's that, And that's like a beautiful way of describing like how our brains are perceiving things. We basically, we hear something, we see something, kind of store it in our memory banks and then we can access it later because of that i don't think that there is a universal thing about any type of music so if you were using the analogy of somebody in a cave i think if they went to go see even a, a jazz concert from 50 years ago 60 years ago like the beginning of bebop they would have just been like what the fuck is this but bebop and jazz within any particular you know piece that they're playing has a lot of repetition within it is, is what I'm saying. And that's and that's what makes it hook into them, whether or not they've been a hermit or not. Right. So what we're talking about is a persistence of pulse, basically, in this situation. We're not talking about... You can't really talk about the harmonic content because the harmonic content's all over the place. I think what we're really talking about then is 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 just the very basic repetition of pulse. You know, you've got the quarter notes on the ride symbol. You've got the quarter notes on the bass. Maybe the man in the cave could latch onto that. But we are just still talking about repetition within a um, fixed piece, right? So but it doesn't necessarily have to be a repetition of pulse. It can be like, I've heard that before. I heard that three minutes ago. That also depends on like one's ability to listen, you know? One's ability to, especially in that type of music, distinguish the, you know, the head or the melody from the improvisations, which, you know, for a lot of those tunes isn't 
that different. I guess in terms of relating it to my music, I would say there is, I mean, there is like a very basic repetition that happens a lot of the time in my music. It, I'm I'm very concerned with, with pulse and rhythm. I mean, that was basically what my question is, is do you think because of the type of pulse and rhythm that's going on, they can realize that you're interacting with the set structure and the process is not so subversive. I don't, exp- I don't actually have any desire to explain to a listener like why it's making these sounds or where these sounds are coming from. And people ask me that all the time. It's like, but what's making the sound? I think it's just feedback. Yeah, but what's making the sound? As far as the pulse stuff goes and the structure, that can vary dramatically from piece to piece. Sometimes it's a very overt thing and you have like a very... Kind like of, the piece you gave me. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Like it's got something that's that's carrying on that's a part of it. And I feel like that's how that is a piece that stands in itself as opposed to a, uh, you know, just kind of like a collection of sounds. It's because you do have a unifying factor. But there are other pieces where that's where the, the pulse and the rhythm are not the unifying factor, where there'll be glimmers of that stuff. As soon as you can attach yourself to it, it's gone. I think actually what I might, if if I were to say I was looking for the audience to latch on to something, it's very much a live performance thing and it happens in the physicality of the sound and the immersiveness of the sound. I think those are the important things. And I want, I don't want people to sit there and think about like this rhythmic structure. I recognize this. I want people to not think at all. I want them to just listen. Yeah. It's and not, like, it's, it's not an intellectual exercise. Yeah, in fact, it's like it's almost hedonistic in a way, like sonic porn or something. You is know? that how you think about it? Kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I just want this like very visceral, immersive, non-thinking experience to happen. Like that's that's how I feel the best when I perform. Like if if I'm not thinking about oh it needs to go here next, it needs to do this. If I'm just on a completely basic level reacting, that feels so good when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. It is all about like kind of the process of of translation and transmission and how that's happening. Yeah. So if you're a composer writing music, like it has to go through the process of translation before it gets transmitted. And I think, you know, kind of the nice thing about performing your own stuff is that you are in a position to just transmit before you translate. Well, I think we should move on to you talking about the piece you gave me. Sure. I made that after going to see the Rio Giaquita installation at the Park Avenue Armory last year. Not last year, but in probably May. I had just really started to deal with uh, this interface I had built for my no input system that, you know, basically was kind of like a drum machine style or step sequencer style interface um, where I could open and close feedback loops using read relays. And then also had some reactivity with these voltage controlled amplifiers that I had been building where it would listen to the signal that the system was outputting, try to analyze the pitch from that, and then that would control an amplifier within the system, which would change the behavior of the system. So you have this kind of feedback loop within it, in addition to the giant feedback loops within the system. And so what it resulted in was this like pretty rhythmic kind of thing. It's just the machine generating material within itself without any outside yeah, so what I do is I take a mixer, you know, I'll take the direct output from channel one and route it back into the input of channel one. And what that basically does is it creates a really shitty erratic oscillator so that, you know, you can basically move the fader up and down, change the EQ, and it'll change the pitch or make it go into kind of like a 
rhythmic yeah. thing like that. And then all of that is kind of matrixed in a way where I can change around the inputs and outputs using uh, rotary switches so that instead of just like one to one, two to two, three to three, it can be something like uh, one to two, two to three, and three to one in terms of the routing, which generates much more complex behavior. And then there's 12 of those. <laughs> okay, so you've just multiplied everything by? By 12. And so what you really end up with is a system that has its own behavior that, you know, I've been playing on it for four or five years now. So I kind of know, I would say when I do something with the intention of changing something, there's an 85% chance that it will change when I perform an action on the mixer. There's maybe a 40% chance that it will change in the way I expect it to change. But then otherwise, I mean, sometimes it doesn't change at all. And sometimes it does something that I would have never thought it would do. So even after four years, this system is still surprising you during performance. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's, that's why, that's why I'm still with it. You know, it's because that is, I like, I like the idea of having such a commitment to actively listen to the music. I mean, you've purposely built a very temperamental machine. Yeah. Because you want it to get moody. Yeah, I want I want my intentions to be subverted. Yes. Like we were talking about intuition earlier being just this thing that you remember or this thing that you know already. I want to hear the stuff that I don't know. That's the exciting part for me.
Can something like this also become a source of material for you later on when you're like, oh my God, that thing I didn't expect worked really well. Let me find a way to harness that in a more predictable way so I can use it so, so I can use it again. Do you ever come across something by accident and say, I would never expect that, but now that it happened, let me try and use it in this other piece? Kind of. I mean, there's a couple of points to hit on here. Yes, that happens all the time all the time that's why i do it is because like something happens that i don't expect i'm like oh i would have never thought to do that that's fantastic but now that but now you think to do that and then you do it on purpose for other pieces well the thing is is with the system it's not a thing you can recreate it varies but you probably more or less know what ha know what happened that make it do that and then you maybe you can make a system that does that again no i mean there's certain there there are a number of parameters that i've learned how to control um, but those moments that happen where it's like, I don't understand why that happened at all. That can have anything to do from the humidity in the room and how it's affecting the resistance and the capacitance of your system. can have to do with the irregularities and voltage coming from the wall, which, you know, depending on where you're playing. I mean, even in my basement, it'll swing pretty hard between 115 and 120, 120 volts, like uh, just coming coming out of the wall. So all of those things will influence how the system behaves. And so it's, it's, there are all these factors that you have absolutely no control over that might be the thing that made it be awesome and it will never happen again. I mean, I can set up, I'll go to shows and I'll set up something like, ah, this is a really cool behavior and thing that it's doing right now. I'm going to just leave it here after sound check. And then I'm going to come back and start the show and I'll start out with this behavior. And then at that point, like the behavior has totally changed without touching a thing. Like if someone know. sneezed in the room. I, I, I mean, I mean, I'm like just saying like as like yeah, something like, as arbitrary as and uncontrollable as that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, good for you for not trying to like own it in a way that. Well, that's you the know, fun is not that, owning I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, know? but I mean, the reason I asked that is because my natural tendency would be to oh, I accidentally discovered this thing and it was really cool. Let me figure out what that is so I can do it again and again so I can own it. So people right. know that as that cool thing that I came upon, people can know as me, right, as, part, right, of, as right. part of my identity. But if you're willing to just let it be what it is and it might never happen again, then you don't have the same claim to it yeah. as, someone who, as someone who does it consistently and becomes their thing. Right. And, uh, um, yeah, good for you for not trying to own it. I think that gets back to the point where what we were talking about earlier with this 
not genius idea, but uh, the idea of this is the piece, this is going to be the piece, right. or is something is just as how you think of it now is just work and part of a longer process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, yeah. it's that's exactly what it is. You know, it's not great because I made it great. I stumbled upon it, and that's fine. I mean, you're still owning something, and that you did build the machine that's capable of doing these great things. You're just not in control of what the you know of what the machine does. Yeah. You made a Frankenstein. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's not me, it's physics that are doing all the cool stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, it's it's really complex stuff that I would never understand. But, but, I mean, I will say at the same time, certainly in the past four or five years of doing this, the behavior of the machine has certainly influenced the decisions that I do make that I can control. So certain types of behavior have become part of my musical vocabulary at this point. Just because you're saying 40% of the time you, you're familiar with what it's doing, you said. Right. And so yeah. that when I can control those things, like my musical vocabulary now is, is kind of based in the things that the system has been doing for the past four or five years. Do you think if you work with this thing for 10 more years, you'll be able to pretty much be familiar with what it's capable of? Like it'll, it'll no longer be able to throw a surprise at you? And then you'll have to build another machine that's more erratic or an erratic in a different way. Well, I mean, so part of my thing is what I do is like it, it is definitely a modular system in the sense that, you know, it started out with just me and this one circuit and the mixer. At this point, I have over 40 circuits that are a part of that system in about 10 or 12 different boxes, which you saw downstairs. And that stuff has been built in equal parts to subvert my control over the system deliberately and also to assert my control over the system. So that play between the subversion and assertion of control is, is in a lot of ways, that's like kind of the primary thing that goes into the compositional process, I think. So you just keep you keep on adding on to it. Do you, I mean? Yeah, yeah it's way so, too big. so so what happens is so what happens is maybe I mean I'm gonna do a hypothetical of how I imagine it. You play you play three shows. Those three shows remind you of the last forty that you've done, and then you go, you know, I need to throw another wrench into the gear here so I don't become so familiar with it. I'll add another four circuits. That'll increase the possibility, however many fold, depending on depending on what you add. Now you're in a situation where you were two years ago yeah where where now you really don't know what's going to happen again no that's exactly what happens but then the system is going to become ever more complicated yeah i don't have an end in sight <laughs> at this point though i should because the amount of shit that i have to haul around to do a gig right that's now what, exactly insane. what i was thinking that's what i was just you know, what I was thinking um so maybe at some point I'll, I'll wisen up and figure out how to do everything with a laptop or something but no, that's exactly what happened in the fall of 2010. I had had like this run of shows, you know, like 20 shows between the spring and the fall and like had this great show where I opened up for Murr's Bell and it was like super high profile and exciting. And after the show, I was like, man, I don't feel as excited about this instrument right now because I know what it's doing. So I took the next four months off and then, or even like five months and didn't play any shows and built new shit to subvert that. And then conversely, like after that, I built more shit to get more control. 
And then I built shit to subvert that control that I had. Oh, wow. You got a real complex here that's I, playing out. But it's it's really nice. It's fun. It's a really fun way to compose and work on a series of pieces, though, to like hunker down at a table with a soldering iron. Is the primary purpose of why you're doing this to make you feel a certain way during a performance? Or do you feel that you have to feel a certain way during a performance or the performance is not going to be good. Yeah, I mean, of course I feel that way. Um, every performer knows, like, you're either in that zone or you're not in that zone. You're either committed to what you're doing or you're distracted from what you're doing. I always want to be committed. But I also, I mean, it's a twofold answer because I also, a lot of it is a compositional concern, right? I do have an idea in mind of what I'm going for. I also think there's a type of performer who wants to be in complete control all the time in order to control the result. It's not always about them feeling fresh. Right. It's about them feeling confident in what they're going to do is aligned with what they want the audience to hear. I don't think I'm that different from that. And the only thing is, is that my confidence comes from that instability. Like the excitement of it comes from that instability. This thing of like where, you know, there's this pulse happening right now, this repetitive pattern happening. If I were to make a decision about where it would go, it would go either here or here. And then the system just does something that's like totally insane. It's not anything you would have ever thought of. It's very abrupt and very jarring, but also very beautiful to me. That is what I want. So in terms of controlling the situation, I want to have the pre-compositional control in, it, in that I want that behavior to happen. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Do you ever feel like you went too far in not knowing what it was going to do, and because of that, you had a shitty performance? I mean, I'm not saying all of a sudden something catches on fire and then you know, and then the building burns down. Right. I'm just I'm just saying it reacts in a way that is really aesthetically not pleasing to you, and it's because you tried to extend it too much too quick and you didn't know what you were getting into. I think when I was first doing it, there was a lot more high-frequency content, like really piercing high-frequency content in the 7 to 14K range uh, that was pretty off-putting for some people and I didn't know how to control. But once I like got that under under wraps within the first you know year or so, I mean, I've certainly had shitty performances, don't get me wrong, <laughs> um, but they usually don't stem from things being too out of control. There, it's either I'm performing in entirely the wrong context, which happens often-ish, or like I've got new technology that, that I haven't I haven't become comfortable with yet, so that I'm still thinking about how you know the Max Patch is interfacing with the voltage-controlled yeah, amplifiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, you know? that's what I. Well, basically, what I mean it was the latter was that you got you have you've built new technology that you're not comfortable yet, and therefore you're unable to control it. But I'm also interested now in the wrong context. Does this mean you took this to a wedding like <laughs> on Daniel's Island? <laughs> no, it's funny. It's it's really funny. Uh, Luke Dubois, after Ted and I did our first show together um, with the Are We Who Are We thing, Luke Dubois came up and said, I want you guys to play my wedding. <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. You guys have to play my wedding. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but no, I mean, yeah, just wrong context. I can give a specific example. I played at Princeton. Dudes wouldn't look me in the eye after the show. Really? <laughs> yeah. Man. And they're all great know. guys. You know, it's just like everybody's wrapped up in, in what whatever they're doing. And like, I understand that. But so like that was weird. I played a show at University of the Streets, which was just 
ridiculous i was playing for a bunch of like straight ahead jazz people and like did you get keyed in the face afterwards? i didn't i didn't, get, <laughs> I, I didn't yeah i didn't get a kevin shea thing going but like uh <laughs> it was it was pretty awkward and like you know there's like a q a afterwards and the guy who booked me actually was like so uh is it your intention to make your music painful to the audience <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you what, what do you say to that man what no, do you say? i'm not a masochist or a sadist, whichever it is, you know, like I don't want to hurt people. If you don't like this shit, get up and leave by all means, you know. And it's something that I try to be like really conscious about now is not playing, not taking the gigs. Sometimes people like I don't know if they hear about me from somebody else or or what or don't realize how loud it is when I perform. But I get offered gigs now that I'm I'm very much more conscious about like cool. I can't do that because it's going to be terrible a terrible situation that's an important judgment to have nobody likes that you don't want to make people suffer through 20 minutes of something they hate and of course of course not you know? of course not and you don't want to be in the position of being the person who is making someone else's life miserable yeah you're making someone minutes. else's life bad and then also um feel it doesn't feel good and i think people assume that the kind of like if it's that much of an assault on them then they make the assumption that you're purposely trying to assault them. Yeah, no, that's it is yeah. funny. Like, yeah. yeah, oh, it's so avant-garde that it's supposed to be assaulting, and that's why I'm doing it for shock value or something. It's and like, like, and and you're just like, no, and I'm sorry that I did that to I'm you. I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. God, you should have, you should have left. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm not like I'm not some fucking like angsty dude who's trying to make everybody no. feel as bad as me. Right. I'm yeah, an angsty dude who's trying to sympathize with other people like me. Right. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a good place to end it. Cool.